Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Herb Morgan, thank you for being on the Mike Litton Experience. This is a little bit different deal. We're not setting up with microphones. This is our first time doing this. We're not setting up with microphones, just doing this video only, and then we're gonna take the audio from the video. Um, but the cool thing is, we're back at your office, um, at Kenner, at Kenner um, in Lloyd, and, or UTC, and we had talked before about doing a series of episodes on different things that we talked about in our initial interview, mm -hmm. but we didn't really get into. Right. Um, and I really appreciate you doing this because I know there are a ton of people out there, including me, that have questions about some of the things that are going on. Fed monetary policy, interest rates, that kind of thing. So if it's okay with you, we're gonna talk about that today and kind of dig a little deep into it. We might get a little technical, so let me apologize ahead of time. Um, but I, but for people that want us to get technical, right? Um, I kind of want to, I kind of want to dig into this, and you're really our resident expert, so I appreciate okay. you doing yeah, this. Yeah, sure. Thing. So let's go back a little bit. So we had the Great Recession, right? And up to the Great Recession, the Fed raised short-term interest rates dramatically, right? And the other day, interest rates actually hit the highest level they've hit in 17 years or some crazy thing, right? Uh, and we're talking about 30-year fixed rates, right? Which is kind of what we key on on the real estate side. So, so, we, so we have the 2008 Great Recession that up until that point, we had, for lack of a better term, irrational exuberance was something that, that was a Greenspan term, right? Um, we had a run-up. And the Fed at that time back then was trying to trying to slow the economy, just like they're doing now, with short-term interest rate increases. And they're doing it by by targeting the overnight rate. Is that right? Yeah, Fed funds rate. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, can you explain that for just a second? What is a for people that don't know what is a Fed funds rate? Mm -hmm. And then. Let's talk about what they did in 2007, 2008, because it was that was a dramatic run up, and it's similar to what we're experiencing today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, today the Fed's meeting, so the timing yeah. is perfect, and we're at uh, we're 36 minutes away from their interest rate decision today. There you go. Uh, and it and it's it's a so so the the Fed has a number of jobs to understand what the Fed does. The Fed was first created early. 20th century. We had a couple of failed central banks in this country first. And the idea was really simple. When you go to the bank and you deposit your money, and the bank loans it out to lots of different people for, for building homes, for financing the inventory of their business, for whatever reason, if all the people that have deposits come in tomorrow and say, I want my money back, the bank can't give it to you because it's not there. Right. That's called fractional reserve banking. 
So we regulate our banks and we say, well, you need to keep a certain percentage of the money there to meet redemptions. But if redemptions exceed the fractional reserve that you have, what do you do? Well, we don't want the banks to go under. So we created a central bank called the Federal Reserve. Okay. And the Federal Reserve says, well, if you, the bank, need money to meet redemptions, you can pledge those business loans and those mortgage loans, those real estate loans, as to us as collateral, and we will loan you the money, okay? That, and then that then you can meet those redemptions to prevent what we saw happen to Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Right. So it's so the redemptions. When you're talking about redemptions, you're talking about you're talking about Mrs. Homeowner walks up or Mrs. Mrs. Depositor. Mrs. Depositor walks yes. up and says. I want my hundred thousand dollars out of this bank, and I want it today. Right. Right. So, so when you when you talk about redemptions, it's somebody coming in with a with a withdrawal slip and saying, "I want my money. I'm I'm concerned about the economy. I'm concerned about whatever." Right. Yeah. Like I got a thing. A couple of weeks they just ago. go online and click click and move their yeah. money. Yeah. Right. And then the, the banks go, "Well, I don't have enough cash." Right. So I have to sell some of my stuff, my loans, or I need to pledge my loans as collateral and borrow money at what's called the discount window. From the federal federal reserve. So it's almost like when a when a and again I, I everything goes back to real estate with me and you know that. But yeah. when we make a real estate loan, right? Somebody buys a house, we make a real estate loan. We turn around and sell that loan to the open market, exactly. Wall Street, right? Uh -huh. And we get that, we recoup that capital back so that we can then recycle it, right? So it's never ending capital, right? So this is an example of that, but a little bit different, where they're taking the loans that they have currently on the books that they're currently collecting payments for, they've got capital out on them, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they're able to go to the Federal Reserve and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna pledge this as I didn't realize they ever did that. Yeah. But they pledge this as collateral. Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve lends them money. Is that the overnight rate? Is that that's, how that works? That's the discount rate. Okay. Okay. And and that is sort of a nobody wants to do it. Okay. Right? You want to borrow from your peer banks to okay. get redemptions. And why but is that? Because it doesn't signal that you're in trouble. It doesn't signal that the industry's in trouble. Oh, so if you go to the Federal Reserve, do, do red flags go off? Or? Yes. Okay. So the rest of the industry says something's amiss, something's in trouble. Now, okay. if, the whole, if there's systemic trouble, there's all kinds of ways we can monitor here to determine if there's systemic trouble. Right. Something called the TED spread. We don't want to get too technical. Yeah. But uh, so it's sort of like a scarlet letter. Mm -hmm. Mike and Herb, the bank of Mike and Herb, had to go to the Fed, pledge Mrs. Newsbaum's mortgage right. to borrow money to meet Mr. Smith's redemption request. Gotcha. Normally, what they do is Feds to meet their, their banks to meet their different cash needs. Go borrow from each other overnight. Okay. That rate is really kind of determined loosely by the Fed funds rate. And okay. So when the when the Fed sets these rates, the Fed funds target rate right. and the discount rate. It means they're going to, the discount rate is the money you borrow from the, from the Fed ad. Okay. Most people don't want to do that unless there's nobody else out there. You okay. want to borrow so last private, resort. Yeah, you want to borrow from the private sector. And that's why the Fed's first job is to be the lender of last resort, okay. which prevents runs on banks. So if I'm understanding this correctly, because this is all new to me, mm -hmm. but if I'm understanding this correctly, if, if, a bank goes to another bank, to a peer bank, and mm -hmm. says, hey, I need a hundred million, whatever the number mm -hmm. is, right, uh, overnight. Mm -hmm. And that peer bank feels like they are lacking confidence in the economy, they're not gonna make that loan. Um, 
I would say with more they lack would lack confidence in the borrower. Okay. Right. So in reality, uh, if the economy's good and everything's moving along fine, and they can all do this loan, I mean. People need different amounts of cash for different reasons yeah. all the time in the banking world, and it's very yeah. normal to have lots and lots of interbank lending going on overnight via, you know, these derivative instruments, via swaps and different things. It's very safe, uh, but in time of incredible stress in the system, go back to your 2008. Right. That's when the Fed had to step up, and everybody was at that discount window. Right. Because we had massively massive people leaving banks all at the same time. Right. And that was the fear in March of 2023 this year that some people said wait a second is this another 08 that was the two bank failures we're talking about so it was, it was a couple silicon valley yeah. and one other silicon one. valley uh the signature the, right it's new york and then of course there was silvergate right over here in yeah. san diego that was had some crypto things going on in it there and there were i think there might have been a couple other small ones yeah but everybody says they're going to be contagion if there's contagion they stop loaning to each other overnight we're watching the ted spread very closely that's kind of tells you how expensive it is to go between each other and it just it just budged it didn't move up the way it did in in 2008 there's been reforms there's been changes in regulation the balance sheets of american banks are incredibly strong then the additional regulation says ah, no you can't pay more dividends out this year we want you to build your capital means the returns on banks for shareholders mm -hmm. could be expected to be a little lower, but they could also expect to be a lot safer. Yeah. So there was no, in the end, it was just a couple of banks that had met with large redemption requests mm -hmm. and their portfolios were not as liquid as they thought they would be. Okay. Mostly because they had long dated mortgage backed securities yeah. and long dated treasury securities. And when they're long dated and interest rates go up, a bond that's due tomorrow doesn't go down at all, right? Yeah. It doesn't get paid off tomorrow. But a bond that's due in 25 years, it has to drop a large percentage to now have a yield that's equal to what the market is. Okay. So as their asset values go down, the regulators say, aha, your asset base is not supporting your deposits. Right. Your asset's now only worth 80 cents in the dollar or 70 cents in the dollar. You need to go out and either raise more capital, equity capital, right. or you need to sell off some of your assets. I mean, well, we can't sell the assets off because they're super impaired and the loss we would incur exceeds the total value of the company and we'd be out of business. And that's essentially what happened. Right. It was really, really bad portfolio management. Gotcha. So for a bank to take all of that or a very large percentage and put it all out in 25 or 30 year US treasuries and mortgage backed securities, right. and to think they didn't have massive interest rate risk, was human error, bad decision, bad policy, bad portfolio management. Uh, the good news is the system worked, right? The Fed, Fed got involved, the FDIC got involved. Now, obviously, FDIC insurance is involved so that people didn't need to panic. Right. My, I was actually at um, um, First Republic. First Republic was the other one, okay. right? So I'm, I'm a client of First Republic. and. You know, my wife said, her, should we, should we get our checking account? I said, well, no, we're covered by FDIC insurance. Mm -hmm. Nothing for us to worry about. Right. And the FDIC insurance fund used to be limited by the assets of the fund. Right. Now it's unlimited, backed by the U.S. Uh, government, full faith and credit. Right. So there was zero risk because we didn't have more than the insured amount in there. It's just a little checking account for yeah. bank bills. And uh, sure enough, you know, they, they went under because of bad portfolio management of their loan and bond portfolio. Uh, it wiped out their equity. JP Morgan came along and said, we'll take it. Yeah. Wipe out the equity holders. I don't know what happened to the bond holders, 
depositors, of course, are fine. Mm -hmm. And if you owe them money, you still owe them money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, doesn't that doesn't go away. Right. So now we owe the loans. Now we owe money to JP Morgan. <laughs> right. So and Jamie Diamond Diamond collects, but. Um, yeah, that was that was interesting this year. We're, it seems to be totally behind us now. Mm -hmm. Interest rates have gone up further, but there has been no further, you know, banks on the rope discussions of banks failing, uh, no widespread regional failures of any kind. And compare that to two thousand and eight. And in my opinion, every bank in the country was in that position uh, that a first public was in back in March, April, May, whatever that was, uh, insolvent. The entire U.S. financial system was insolvent, and I don't think anybody—well, not anybody—I don't think most people understand how close we were to the abyss. Yeah, we were there. Yeah, and if you remember, uh, Treasury uh, Secretary at the time Paulson, you know, genuflecting uh, to Nancy Pelosi in the halls of Congress to try to get the TARP bill passed. Mm -hmm. And then the TARP bill was voted and it failed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I actually was talking with a member of Congress at the time and who is a very, he was class of 94, he was a very conservative person. And of course he wouldn't vote for a bailout until he realized he had no choice but to vote for a bailout or right. the entire system was gone. And then you had uh, Christopher Dodd from Connecticut on TV saying, well, we might just nationalize the banking system. Mm -hmm. This is the United States. We don't yeah. nationalize industries, especially the most systemically important industry, one of the two or three most systemically important industries we have. Right. Um, and because of TARP and some other programs, and of course the Federal Reserve, you know, Herculean tasks within, you know, and they're limited by law what they can do. Right. Uh, we got through it. We bottomed out in March of 09, and, and the world's been coming back ever since, interrupted by COVID pandemic. Gotcha. Yeah. There's a <clears throat> TED talk out there okay. about mark-to-market accounting. Yes. Are you familiar with it? Yes. Not with the talk, but with mark-to-market. Right. So is that that's what this guy claims is the real cause of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, it sounds like from what you're saying, it's a myriad of things. Like it, it's, it's multiple things, but mark-to-market was, mark-to-market went into effect. Mm -hmm at the exact time the crisis began. Right. So there's no question there's a correlation, and I would think there is a significant causation. Because prior to mark-to-market -market accounting, if, if you had bought a U.S. Treasury, let's say, and you paid, uh, and you're a bank, and you own that U.S. Treasury, and it's worth $100 million in principal value, okay, and the interest rates go higher, well, it still has principal value of 100, but the market, if you wanted to sell it today, it might only be worth 80 million. Right. And because the rates went higher. Right. The regulators came in and said, hey, you can't be carrying an asset at $100 million that in the market is only worth 70 or 80 right. or 60 or 40 or whatever. So that went into effect. At the same time, we had all these instruments out there called uh, CLOs, CDOs, and, and then there was credit default swaps. There was a giant insurance company called AIG. Yeah. What AIG would say, go to all these people that owned all these and said, you know what, just pay us a little fee and we'll insure you against any losses on those on those mortgage-backed securities. Kind of like if you're familiar with writing naked puts, they were writing naked puts on mortgage portfolios yeah. and bonds and they were taking in premium. The problem is AIG wrote so much in premium and took in so much that the underlying amount of what they insured, there was no way possible ever 
that they would have enough capital to insure those losses. They were literally betting that real estate would only go up and there would never be losses. Oh, wow. And they bet their entire company, one of the largest and greatest insurance companies in the world, on that, and they lost that bet. And that company was ultimately wiped out, bailed out, of course, through the Fed, the TARP, and all mm -hmm. the different programs. I look back at that time and I say, wow, it was really exciting. It was really lucky that we had uh, uh, Paulson at, mm -hmm. at Treasury uh, because he came from Wall Street. Yeah, Goldman Sachs. And Goldman, and he understood what needed to be done. You yeah. needed to raise, basically you needed to recapitalize the whole system, yeah. but there was no player in the world big enough to recapitalize the whole system. Correct. The only player big enough was the same. Yeah. It was the federal government. He understood that. Ben Bernanke understood that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I don't think, the person that I was advising, talking with in Congress, definitely didn't understand that. Because well, I remember the conversation vividly when he voted no the first time, and, and I, said, I, said, you, I said, you have to understand, this is fractional reserve banking. Mm -hmm. And he goes, what's fractional reserve banking? Oh, and I wow. said, wait a second, you just voted for something, you don't understand, and I, so I did the lesson I just did with you, yeah. with simple stuff, right? Yeah. Making the complex and complicated, simple and sensical. And he said, Herb, none of my colleagues know that. We're talking in the hall all day long right now. We don't know what's going on. The world's imploding. Mm -hmm. And thank God he listened. Yeah. And he, then they, a bunch of people that had voted no turned around and voted yes. We got it passed. And that was the beginning. Of and what was brilliant to save the free market system, we had to do some sort of non-free market things. Yeah. But what what Paulson did was he insisted that the taxpayers get paid back, mm -hmm. not just for the loan, but they had some upside in the deal. And I used to track it, it's been years, so I don't, I don't know what the ultimate outcome was. But in addition to getting their money back, the taxpayers they got, made interest. got the warrants yeah. on the equity. So when the equity, which they've saved, came back, it, it, was, a, it was a brilliant combination of capitalism and free markets partnering with government as a last resort, which I, in, in, I'm an economist, it's my, my view is that's the proper role and that's the proper time, mm -hmm. as opposed, you can't just say never. Right. Because if it was never, we wouldn't be sitting here today, I'd be selling apples on the street corner. Right. If we didn't have that TARP and those programs, uh, I wouldn't be sitting in front of this Bloomberg terminal overlooking La Jolla, California. Right. This wouldn't be happening. Yeah. That's how serious it was. Yeah, it was, it really was. Yeah. So, so we have this run-up of interest rates where the Federal Reserve is trying to, they're trying to basically slow the economy down. They're trying to keep inflation from rearing its ugly head. Mm -hmm. They make all these short-term interest rate increases and it starts to take effect right at the exact time that all this systemic issue, all these systemic issues start rearing their ugly head. And so all of a sudden, it's sort of the perfect storm. So then, basically, Bernanke and the rest of them decide we're going to we're going to cut interest rates down to zero. Yes, we're going to try to do what we can mm -hmm. to try to save what we've, for lack of a better term, helped to destroy. Right? Which kind of, I mean, if you if you look looking back at it, yeah, is a little scary. Okay. It was a, it was it was a lot of players, but but yeah. So the the Fed. The first job lender bus resort. Yeah. Then remember in the seventies, yeah, we had all this inflation. Yeah. So there's a lot of people, including me, who say, well, maybe the Fed's job shouldn't be price stability, meaning okay. 
getting, not having deflation or inflation, price stability, fighting inflation or fighting deflation. I always kind of thought that's not really their job. The Fed should just kind of be the lender of last resort, make sure the banking system's safe. But our country voted, the Congress made the decision that the Fed now has to also have two more jobs. First one of those jobs is price stability. We went through that period of hyperinflation, and we haven't had it since, with the exception of the last couple of years, we had a spike. Nothing like the 70s, yeah, nothing thank like God. Yeah. And number two, they need to foster full employment. So price stability and full employment, two new jobs that the Fed got, I want to say, like 1980, 81-ish, somewhere around there. Late 70s, early 80s, somebody can correct me, send me an email. <laughs> but, uh, those jobs were given to the Fed by Congress. Mm -hmm. So the Fed says, okay, we got this lender of last resort thing down. Price stability could be fighting inflation or deflation, and they haven't this they have never defined price stability. Other central banks around the world define it. So our our central bank, the Fed, operated years and years and years with well, what is price stability? Mm -hmm. I would assume zero percent inflation, zero percent deflation. The European Central Bank says it's 2% inflation. Well, that's not stability. That's a slow, steady erosion of purchasing power. Correct. It's a devaluation of your currency. It's very small. Right. It's very steady. But the view is it encourages people not to hoard cash. Yeah. It encourages you to put your work, your money to work in the system, which benefits everybody. You know, when I invest in something, it theoretically benefits everybody. Correct. So the, the U.S., Ben Bernanke's parting gift when he left was he got his committee's team to vote on defining price stability for the first time and they voted to define it as two percent inflation to match what the europeans do okay then they said well how do we measure inflation okay. everybody has their own inflation number right you probably drive a lot more than me being in real estate i do i drive six miles here i said this desk all day yeah so your inflation rate is more greatly impacted by the price of gasoline oh, yeah. than is mine and I know you're, you probably go, oh boy, you probably drive a big F-150. I do actually. There's the stairs in the parking lot. Right? <laughs> I got a little car, right? So, so, or uh, let's, whatever. Whatever I consume is different from what you consume and everybody has a slightly different inflation rate. Yeah. People who are locked into a 30 year mortgage in their home and they're 15 years in, well, the price of their lodging isn't going up. In California, we have our Prop 13, our taxes are going up a little bit a year, but they're kind of locked. But food, gas, clothing, travel, water, water like all the other stuff is, is different. So there are all kinds of different baskets to measure the inflation rate. Right. The one that most of us know about is the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Mm -hmm. This is published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it's very good. It's a fixed basket of securities that all these nerds like me get together and decide this is about what the average American uses, boom. And they publish two numbers every 30 days. One is the total CPI, and then one they call the core CPI, which backs out food and energy. Mm -hmm. People get very upset about that. They think they're hiding something. They're not hiding something. They're giving you two data points. They're giving you more information by doing headline and core. Why do they back out food and energy? Food and energy are very volatile. Right. So by backing them out, you can get a better idea of the trend. That's the core. Doesn't mean they don't matter. It just means if you want the longer term trend, you back those two out. So they publish both of those. Okay. But they're static baskets, meaning 
they only revise them every so often, the amount that's weighted towards green beans, the amount that's weighted towards eggs, the amount that's weighted towards electricity is fixed. The Fed says to measure inflation, we want to use something called PCE, mm -hmm. Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. It's just another measurement of inflation. And that one is a floating basket. So it's based on the actual consumptive data in the aggregate of the population. In other words, so now um, cell phone services, mm -hmm. streaming services, all the you know plasma TVs, mm -hmm. if those prices are going down, 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 then their weighting might also go down if we're using less of them or up if they're using more of them or vehicles or insurance or all the different things. So the Fed's view is they're all relevant. They look at them all. They have hundreds of economists. Mm -hmm. But the core PCE, which is the PCE, which is a floating basket based on actual consumption, smart, and then it backs out food and energy because it could be volatile. Mm -hmm. They're keenly aware of They're not ignoring it but their target is set 2% core PCE, which they had mostly been below for many, many years. Mm -hmm. 15 straight years, we're kind of, we had a couple of peaks, and it, whenever that number would start to get towards 2%, the Fed would start hiking interest rates to try to slow down aggregate demand. So they would they would hike short-term interest rates though. The short-term so like interest rates, so only when they control. So every, time they, every, time they con every time they make a change to that rate, yeah. And I think you're calling it, the, I, I apologize, but I think you're calling it the overnight rate. Fed funds, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So every time they change the Fed funds rate, target, if you will, right, yeah. all of a sudden the prime is adjusted. Like it immediately mirrors, yes. right? Yes. So that changes corporate borrowing. Yes. In terms of how much it costs for, the, for these companies to borrow. And one of the things that we learned in the in the Great Recession was companies like GE called Paulson when everything was going to you know what in a handbasket. Uh, GE called Paulson and said the Emil, the CEO, called Paulson and said we're not going to make payroll. Mm -hmm. And we were the we world. Were, we were that close. Yeah, and the world found out that that GE was actually borrowing money from the bank in order to make payroll. So it was not what people not what people think. A lot of people think GE makes all this money, takes all this money, throws it in a bank account, then makes makes their payroll checks out of the makes their payroll out of their they don't do that. Yeah. They do it off of their lines of credit, their corporate lines of credit, which are tied to prime. Yeah, so so corporate borrowing mostly mostly tied to to prime. Yes. Right. So the the idea is when you know if this is this sort of okay we have inflation why do we have inflation well too much money chasing too good too few goods and services right right so if we suddenly double the availability of gasoline in our storage tanks tomorrow we'd have more supply more supply and price would absolutely just go down right it's it's just simple if we suddenly don't have any gasoline then there's a little bit left in storage. I might siphon some of it out of my car to sell to you, but I might charge you $100 a gallon and you might be willing to pay. Right. So everything is always about supply and demand. Too, too much money chasing too few goods and services. So that gets us to the Fed's other tool, right? First one is the interest rates. Right. The second is the amount of money in circulation, okay. right? So when the Fed wants to stimulate the economy, they want to lower the rates 
and get more money in circulation. Okay. How do they get the money in circulation? They print it. Well, they print it, but how do they print it? It's okay. all electronics, right. right? It's right. So they print it by going out and buying bonds out of the marketplace from people that own bonds. They buy right. treasury bonds. They could buy 10 year, 15, five, three, 20, 30, and mortgage-backed securities. So mortgage-backed securities facilitate your interest, right? Right. So the Fed goes out and says, we really want to stick to it. We want to put more money in the economy. Because if there's money in the economy, what do people do with money? They spend it. Spend and invest it. They can yeah. spend it on capital expenditures for business, which hires people is great. Or they can spend it on consumption, which also hires people, which is great. Mm -hmm. So when, when 08 hit, the Fed cut interest rates to zero and started buying bonds with, with, with no end in sight, driving interest rates to near zero, that stimulates economic activity and okay, growth. Let's, let's hold on for one second. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do it. But let's let's talk about this for a second because okay. it's it's not well known. You have this overnight rate, this Fed funds rate, yeah. that they're targeting, that they're controlling, right? Quote unquote. I mean it's their target, right? They, but, they target and they intervene in the market to pay it to right, get it. To right. Get so so you have that, that's short term, that's prime, that's corporate lending, that's um, you know car loans, that's short term credit cards, right? That's, that's short term borrowing. Many things are based off of that and can be impacted by that. Right. Yes. Then you have this other thing where they start buying bonds mm -hmm. and by buying bonds, they take a certain amount of the inventory of bonds that's available on the market, and they and they hoard it basically. They they own it, right? Mm -hmm. And by doing that, they drive they they, they reduce the supply. Uh -huh. Let's say the demand stays constant, right? No change in demand. The they reduce the supply. All of a sudden, the price of the bond goes up. Yes. But what people oftentimes don't understand is when the price of the bond goes up, the yield goes down. And 30-year fixed rates, longer-term interest rates, follow those yields, yes. right? Like the 10-year treasury, for yes. instance, that kind of thing, <laughs> which is oftentimes referred to as a bellwether, right? Yes. For 30-year fixed rates. So when they when they start buying those bonds and they start sort of taking that inventory off the market, that supply off the market, that drives the price of the bonds up and, and drives the yield, which is inverted, drives the yield down. Yes. Interest rates follow that yield. <clears throat> and so now you have 2% interest rates, 3% 30-year fixed rates, right? Mm -hmm. Versus what we have now, which is eight, mm -hmm. okay? <clears throat> so explain how that's printing money. Well, when the, you and I can't, if I want to buy a trillion dollars worth of bonds, I need to have money. Right, you I, need the trillion dollars. I don't have the trillion. Right. I mean, maybe if we put our money together, we have Yeah, not really. I don't have a trillion. All right. I've got 45 cents on the right? We'll get some coffee. <laughs> uh, so the Fed is is a unique in a unique position. Yeah. They can print the money to buy those pay. Now, keep in mind, all banks print money. Okay. Think, think about it. Okay. But the I'm Fed, <laughs> so the Bank of America prints money because it, if you if I come in and I deposit a million dollars and you come in and deposit a million dollars, we both have a checkbook and we can both write a check for a million dollars. Right. They've also lent money to a developer over here who's building a condo complex. They've right. lent, let's call it a million and a half of that two million out. So now that guy has a checkbook for a million and a half. You've got a checkbook for a million, I've got a checkbook for a million. They That's, printed the money. There's three and a half. It's been printed. Right. But the Fed, because they're the central bank, they can just print it 
without having deposits behind it, okay. right? Now, theoretically, they're the bank to all the banks, so there's an argument that they do, but what they do is they say, we create money, poof, we buy the bonds with it, and that increases the money supply. Increase in the money supply, the great economist Milton Friedman said, inflation is always a always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Right. So if you print money and it's out there, now you have more money chasing too few goods and services, the price of everything will just go up. Right. So let's now that brings us to the COVID crisis. Okay. I think the worst policy mistakes that we've ever made as a country, economic policy, uh, I'm not an expert on the medical policy, but I think some of those were mistakes. Some of the lockdowns are now, I just read a research report this week from an economic perspective, the, the, the lockdowns didn't work, et cetera. But I can tell you from an economic perspective, here's what we did. We said, okay, everybody stay home and don't do anything. Right. We're gonna shut down the means of production. Can't go to a baseball game, can't go to a concert. Only you go to church. You can't go to church. You right. go to a hospital, uh, you can go to the food, but you know you have to wear your mat, da 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 So we shut down everything. People couldn't come to the work. Yeah. People couldn't go get haircuts. Remember everybody's hair was getting all long and shaggy. You couldn't go get your nails done. All of the things that contribute to economic activity. So goods and services were reduced. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then on the other side, what did we do? We gave everybody checks. We mm -hmm. said, we're so sorry you can't go to work. We're so sorry we have to shut down your small business. We're going to make it up to you. We're going to give you money, even if you didn't ask for it. Based on your industry, SIC, Standard Industry Code, mm -hmm. people were getting checks that didn't ask. It was coming into their deposit. It was very disorganized. And the Federal Reserve had to go out and buy up all the bonds, too. So we had met the monetary stimulus in response to COVID was multiple times larger than the stimulus right. from 08. Right. And so the four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet went to eight. Went to, yeah, it was it was insane. It was, and it was like that. It was quick. And so <laughs> we're saying, wait a second. So different people drop whatever. We're going to create more money and reduce goods and services. There's mm -hmm. only one thing that can happen. Only one. And that's inflation. Yeah. So that's what we got. So now the Fed's, oh shoot, we, we and, and remember, it wasn't just the Fed's, mm -hmm. the, it was the, the fiscal side, the Congress, right, right, and the, and the president signed um, the, the, the fiscal stimulus. So we're gonna borrow even more, this right. is the US Treasury now, not the right. Fed, the Treasury, we're gonna borrow like crazy, and we're gonna just give money to businesses, forgivable loans for small businesses and all this, but don't open and don't actually produce or make anything or don't cut anybody's hair because we don't want people to get sick. So now we've got all these people with these computers at home and all this money getting deposited in their account and they don't they go to work, so they just buy stuff, mm -hmm. okay? But there's no stuff being made. Right. So inflation comes mm -hmm. and everybody's surprised. Shouldn't be surprised. Milton Friedman said it very eloquently. More money, fewer goods and services, end of story. Exactly. So then, okay, the fiscal stimulus, the excessive fiscal stimulus, those programs have ended. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a start. But now we have all this extra money out there still floating around. Mm -hmm. And in the last 13 months, the Fed has shredded, instead of printing, this time now the Fed has shredded $1 trillion, which is, I was looking at it this morning, we've taken a trillion dollars out, out, of, of, money out of circulation. Right. So 
M2, which is the unit we use to measure the growth of the money supply, in an economy like the United States that is growing, say, 3% a year on average, mm -hmm. our, our, our population is growing, right? Mm -hmm. So we need more money every year to facilitate things we have. Correct. So the Fed does need to slowly and steadily increase the money supply, one of the reasons why they have that 2% objective. Mm -hmm. But we had a year-over-year -year money supply growth of like 23%. Hmm. We're lucky we didn't get higher, even higher inflation. Right. So then we reopened, of course, and everybody. Then we had the supply chain issues because the nobody even making anything. The fiscal policy people right. thought, well, let's just turn off the economic activity, and then when we're ready, we'll turn it back on. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work yeah. that way. Yeah. You need inventory. You need product. Yeah. You need people. You need supply chain. You need process. It takes time. It was a complete and total disaster. Yeah. Nobody asked her what they should do, yeah. but other there are some Scandinavian countries we can look to that had very successful models, mm -hmm. uh, Sweden being the best, best results, uh, health and uh, economy combined, obviously. But uh, we have what we had, we did what we did, and now the Fed, remember, the Fed's job of price stability mm -hmm. is law. They don't have a choice. They have to take action. So the Fed's now looking and say, remember, I have three jobs. Lender of last resort, no banks are failing right now. And back in March, we had some in that we were a little worried. Mm -hmm. Job number two and three, which are co-equal, price stability, full employment. Mm -hmm. We're at full employment, we're at 3.8%. So the Fed said, I'm gonna focus on this one. So they've now deprinted a trillion. They haven't sold the bonds, right, which would take money out. They're just letting the bonds mature. So they're being very cautious and slow about it. Now, as, is that what they would refer to as liquidation? Yeah, it's natural liquidation. If, right. I, own a, if I own a treasury It's almost like bill, a, by attrition kind of thing. So yeah. it's just the as The bonds are just maturing. Now they could, if, they, if inflation started to spike back up, they have another tool. Yeah. They could actually start selling yeah. those bonds, driving rates ooh, really high. Yeah. It's another tool. And that's, we did that in the 80s to you know, break the back of inflation and so forth. But they're being very slow and deliberate about it. Um, and all of this is happening within at the context where we still have some inflationary pressures from the fiscal side of the house. Mm -hmm. Because inflationary pressures come from, hey, we printed too much money, for sure. Right. We overdid it. We, we had far more than we did during the global financial crisis for a problem that was nowhere near as complex. Uh, uh, it wasn't as big of a problem from an economic standpoint. But it seemed like there was a lot of panic going on. There was a, a lot of panic, and the Federal Reserve went nuclear day one. Yeah. And the fiscal side, the Congress, also went nuclear. Yeah. And so now the problem we have is, that, let's go back to our federal government, the Congress is, is, is in charge of spending. Right. We perpetually run budget deficits. Mm -hmm. And I can get into why, if that's of interest, or how or how we're able to pull it off without the company, country collapsing. But we run these deficits. And our election cycles are such Nobody ever wants the economy to slow down before the, their next election, right. which is constant every right. two years, right? So everybody just approves spending. Mm -hmm. And both parties, they're really bad at it. And when you are spending money you don't have, that's also inflationary. Right. Okay, so if you can get those deficits down and get the money supply to roll over, you can solve your inflation problem. Right. The money supply is rolled over. We've had the first ever year-over-year -year negative growth in the money supply. That is happening. But the, Washington's going nuts. Washington's going nuts. The formula for GDP, gross domestic product, is C plus I plus G plus X minus M. 
C is consumption. That's you and I going for a taco when we're done here. Mm -hmm. I, capital investment by businesses. Let's build a building, let's build a factory, let's build a new car wash. Mm -hmm. G, government spending. X, exports, minus M, imports. Right. Imports subtract from GDP. It's the G that right now, many economists believe is the problem. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, we want to spend money to help our citizens, to provide services for our citizens, roads, bridges, infrastructure, right. military protection, <clears throat> uh, services for the poor, for the deaf, for the handicapped, the list goes on and on and on and on, the mentally ill. Things are all excellent uses of government resources but we spend far more than we take in in revenue. Right. So why can we do that? Want me to go Yeah, let's go <laughs> okay. yeah. So I don't think there's anything off the table with you. And, uh, and honestly, this is gonna be a series, so we're gonna do a few right. of these, right? Yeah. But I want to dig into that brain because <laughs> you've spent all these years learning all this. Yeah. And I want, you to share it with us so that we can educate the public on okay. here's what's going on, right? Okay. Because, you know, <clears throat> people fear what they don't know. 100%. And honestly, investors panic is usually for lack of knowledge. Honestly, there's a lot of fear out there. And there one of the things that you talked about, and, and let's talk about for just one second, yeah. let's plug your your podcast, which by the way, just celebrated its 10,000th download. Hey, congratulations. Thank you that's awesome, yeah, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I'm proud of you. Slaying so, Bulls and Bears. That's right. Slaying Bulls and Bears yeah. is available on iTunes, pretty much anywhere you anywhere, get podcasts, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's on every Monday morning. And I'm, I'm, I subscribe. So I listen to it every, and I love it. Thanks. You mentioned the other day that you started getting phone calls from people about, hey, should I start cashing in my security? Should I start liquidating my investments? And this last, this Monday was fascinating because you talked about the wisdom of either doing that or not doing it. Yes. Right? I feel like that a lot of what you got in terms of phone calls was because, is because people don't understand. They're not educated. So what I'd like to do, yes. if you're okay with it in this series of, of episodes we're doing, is let's educate them. Sure. Okay. Sure. So let's go ahead. Go ahead and talk about. Wow. Go ahead. <laughs> Wait. Am I talking about the, the recent? We're talking about budget deficits. We're talking. Okay. Yeah. So and why the U.S. can do this? Correct. Okay. So we won World War II. Right. Okay. Prior to World War II, we were a growing country. We were an up-and-comer country, but we didn't control the world order. Right. We began to control the world order because we won World War II. Right. World War II was going, the French, the British, and others needed supplies. Mm -hmm. We said, we don't want to get involved. This was in the early days. and But we're, we're more than happy to sell you supplies. Right. But we don't want French francs <laughs> because we don't know if they're going to be worth anything. Right. And we don't want British pounds because we don't know if they're going to be worth anything. Well, we didn't know if they were going to survive. That was it. World War II. That I mean, was you, had Hitler, you had Hitler carpet bombing. Right, and, and wholesale taking over Europe. Yes. We kind of thought all that could end up being Germany. That's right. Like so, the whole thing. So we're, we're more than willing to build things and send them to you, yeah. things you need, food, armaments, but you're gonna have to pass in gold. And of course, France, UK, other countries in a position, not in a position to say no, they needed things, mm -hmm. and we sold them to them for gold. As a result, 
much of the world's gold reserves ended up being shipped to the United States. Mm -hmm. That was critical and us part of many things because us to be a very wealthy country. The right. gold came to us. Fortunately, or unfortunately, we were then pulled into the war. Fortunately, we won the war. But as the war was drawing to an end, the U.S. and its allies, as we saw victory coming, the U.S. and the allies got together and said, we need to define the new world order post-World War II. Right. One of those is the monetary system and the monetary order. And it was decided at a place called Bretton Woods in New Hampshire mm -hmm. with a meeting of everybody, and that in the end, uh, all currencies will be pegged, the exchange rate will be pegged to the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. dollar will be backed by physical gold. Right. And therefore, uh, the whole world's gonna grow and expand. And it actually did work for mm -hmm. about 30 years. Yeah, it did. But the problem was, as the economies grew and expanded, and then we had this other very expensive war to fight in Vietnam, because your currency must be backed by gold, you can't do this printing right. and deprinting. You can't just do it. It's backed by a certain amount of gold. Correct. But our economy got so large, there's just, quite frankly, there's just not enough gold to facilitate this awesome economy. Right. And we didn't, there was, we needed money <laughs> to finance the Vietnam War. Right. So during that period, among other things, Nixon said, we're off the gold standard. Our currency will be backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government and its might and its balance sheet and its strength and its military strength and its economic strength. And the world accepted that. Mm -hmm. In the adjustment period from the world, from that happening to being accepted, the value of our currency declined significantly. That's inflation when mm -hmm. your value of your currency declines. Then it stabilized in the early 1980s, mid-1980s, and it has been essentially stable ever since, right. even though it's not backed by anything physical. There just isn't enough gold in the world to do that and allow the economy to grow, and we needed to finance the Vietnam War. For, 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 so we basically were restrained. As an economy, as, as a yes. government, as an economy, yeah. we were restrained in terms of what we could do. Yes. We had more demand than we had supply, yes. right? Yeah. So we had to figure out a way to increase the supply dramatically and do it in a way to where basically we could just print what we needed. Print what you need. And so now history is full of, of weaker countries mm -hmm. doing that and having their currency just spiral down to nothingness, right? right? The Zimbabwe's and the Venezuela's of the world, and we've seen this over and over. But the US, since going off that hard currency standard, that gold standard, We've done pretty well. Mm -hmm. So so the question is, how in the heck are we doing that? Well, this goes back to this Bretton Woods meeting where we said everybody's currency is now pegged to the US dollar. The US dollar is backed by gold. When we went off the gold, we then started moving towards free-floating currencies. But during that period... Is that what they call reserve? So the, the, the US is a reserve currency? Well, that's what... That's, it's like two seconds. Oh, I'm sorry. Perfect, I'm sorry. Perfect timing. I'm sorry. Okay. Is... All, of, all of the business transactions, the transactions in the world, essentially are done in dollars. Yeah. So let's just say I am in Korea mm -hmm. and I own an Italian restaurant and I want to buy my favorite Brunello to serve at my restaurant in Korea. Okay. What's Brunello? It's a wine okay. from, from Italy. Okay. Okay. There wine from go. Italy. Delicious. You I don't have the palate. You know. But okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so I'm a close like that. I'm a close like that. So this 
restaurant in Korea, that's an Italian restaurant that wants to buy Italian wine. Does he buy the Italian wine from producer in Italy in lira? No. Which don't exist anymore. Right. Euro. Right. Or does he buy it in Korean won? Mm -hmm. Or does he buy it in something else? All the world's commerce is done in U.S. dollars. Got it. Now, there are people in the world that would prefer that was not the case. Mm -hmm. Russia would prefer that's not the case. China would China prefer, would prefer it's, not it's not the case. So we there's value to us as having everything done in dollars. Right. The value is this. We import a lot of stuff from a lot of places. In poorer countries, they can produce at a lower cost. And we buy stuff, buy the container folds. It comes in, in Long Beach mm -hmm. under. And we buy that with what? Dollars. Dollars. So the dollars are now in the hands of Chinese manufacturers, right. Japanese manufacturers, Korean manufacturers, whoever. What do they do with those dollars? Because we run a trade deficit, so we, we buy some of their stuff and they buy some of our stuff, but at the end- We buy more of their stuff than they do ours. So therefore they have dollars. Right. What do they do with those dollars at the end of the year? They buy U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. So they buy U.S. Treasury securities because it's the largest, safest, most liquid security in the world, even though it's backed say it's backed by nothing, but it's really not. Backed by the United States of America's military and economic might, which is unlike anything the world has ever seen. Right. So, it is backed. It's not backed by gold anymore, but it's backed by that. And the world has decided to put its full faith and credit. Even our adversaries, right? Even the Iranians, mm -hmm. the North Koreans, they have a lot of dollars mm -hmm. squirreled away. Yeah. A lot of times we get to freeze them. So it gives us this power as a country to, to impose our will on bad actors like Iran and North Korea, and we can freeze their assets that are denominated in dollars. Our reach, our regulatory reach, goes all over the world through the world financial system because of this reserve currency status. But now we've got these other people buying our U.S. Treasury securities, and now the money comes back. So the U.S. government says, well, guess what we can do? We can run a deficit of two, three, four percent every year because we can run a budget deficit because of our trade deficit. We can sell these bonds, but as an economist, I say, well, yeah, you can do that for a while. And we've always said, when do you do that? You do that when you're in a really bad recession to try to stimulate your economy. And John Maynard Keynes, a great economist, said, look, when you're in a depression or a recession, take those 20 guys over there on the side of the road that are out of work, mm -hmm. give them 20 shovels, dig a hole. Here's your pay. Fill the hole back up. Here's your pay. You just stimulate the economy because right. now you've got 20 people that can go out buying and now, tacos or whatever. Right? Yeah. And then you stop when the economy recovers. Right. That's stimulus idea number one. Well, what we've done, and you, you do that in two times, deep recession or war. Right. In World War II, we borrowed, 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 ran deficits in Vietnam, we ran deficits. But you need to have your dry powder. Right. And what, the, what we've done is we've evolved now and said, boy, this really good at stimulating the economy. Mm -hmm. We should have more government spending. And so now there's this whole group of economists, really they're more politicians, they really lack sort of economic knowledge, but they've embraced something called modern monetary theory. Mm -hmm. And they say, our deficits aren't big enough. We should just keep printing even more money mm -hmm. and spending more money. Now, the evidence is now coming in because we've done it for a number of years now, and the evidence is clear, it's inflationary. Yeah. So, the Federal Reserve has this job of price stability, but Congress doesn't have a job of price stability. Correct. So the Federal Reserve is like, well, we, we kind of report to Congress. We're independent, but we report to these guys. They're causing the inflation now. 
The Fed's deprinted a trillion dollars in the last 13 months. Mm -hmm. What do we do? And the, the, we could cause a recession. Mm -hmm. So the Fed's going to either, the market's either going to have cheese of this soft landing, which essentially we have done for now. We haven't had, a, you know, we haven't had a recession as a result of these rate hikes or the deprinting of the money. But um, the government just continues to spend, to deficit spend at a time that is not a time of war or recession. And right. that is what's got many economists worried. The federal government just needs to be, the Treasury, the student Congress, needs to be more responsible. And despite the fact that we need to provide great things to people and services to our citizens, um, we have to be realistic about what we can do. And we're, 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 we're not there. We also have things that are on budget, like Social Security and Medicare, that technically come from trust funds. The problem with those trust funds is they're only allowed to buy one security, specially issued government debt. So it's debt upon debt, and that's that's unsafe and unsustainable long term. And we keep we keep waiting for one of our two political parties to do something about it. Um, and neither one will because it's absolute. It, it's it's, it's, it's short-term political suicide. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute political suicide. Exactly, short political suicide. suicide. Yeah, that, yeah, that was kind of what I was trying to think of yeah. as, a, as a term. But, yeah. you know, they won't, it's too hot. It's right. too hot a subject. They just won't touch it. And, and, and kind of like immigration, right? Too many, this, too many people are too dependent on that government largesse for their for their livelihood, right? And, and, and just too many interested parties and so, uh, look, you know, history is full of countries that had debt outstanding as a percentage of their GDP, uh, getting north of 100%. It's kind of where we are, 100%. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, the, the, the theory for people like me is, well, we can't, we're not going to start paying down debt, ever. It's never going to happen, uh, unfortunately. It would be great if we said, okay, we're going to run a balanced budget. That's going to be recessionary for a couple of years. It's going to hurt, but we're going to get there and da da da. So the only solution is to grow the GDP faster than you grow the debt, to get the debt as a percentage of GDP down. One of the things about higher interest rates is it does force discipline on the U.S. Treasury, mm -hmm. and, or the Congress, they issue the debt through the U.S. Treasury. But if interest rates are going up as a percentage of the budget, which they clearly are, then they almost can't spend. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, there's, there's, I think our constitution is very clear, right? Uh, only those specific powers granted to the federal government by the states, and then, but over history, the federal government has taken more and more powers, which are clearly uh, not allowed by the constitution. Right. Uh, this would be a controversial <laughs> one, but a great example would be a Department of Education. Mm -hmm. Very large government bureaucracy. Uh, spends a lot of money, tries to do very good things by its citizenry, but really what do they provide that the state of California, the state of Arizona, the state of Texas can't provide, right? We have teachers that understand how to educate, we have the buildings, we have, we have the taxes. So what does the federal government really do? If, if I'm a parent and I live in uh, Mississippi and I don't like the school system and how they fund it and how they do it, well, I might vote with my feet and move to Oklahoma, mm -hmm. where the schools might be better, and therefore they're attracting people and then tax revenue, and that forces Mississippi to get better. But And there are just example after example after example of things the federal government does that if you go back to the Constitution, they really aren't supposed to be doing. Right. I don't have a solution.
Well, I don't think any of us has a solution necessarily. I mean, a lot of people, you know, have right. their opinions, right? Right. Um, what's interesting about this, though, is as we're sitting here having this conversation, it's November 1st of 2023 as we're recording this, and 30-year fixed rates are the highest they've been in 17 years or whatever that number is. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's having an effect on housing. Now, it's not having the effect that a lot of people thought it would have on housing in terms of there being a great deal more supply. There are some moratoriums that have expired in California, for instance, eviction moratoriums and foreclosure moratoriums that have expired yeah. that were extended post-COVID right here. Right. Um, and so we're looking at, we're starting to see some green sprouts of, of more inventory. But one of the things you mentioned that happened last week was new home sales were up 12% or some crazy thing. Yeah. And yeah. that was not at all what, what the street expected. No, it wasn't. And one of the things I mentioned to you, Bruce Norris, Bruce Norris in his uh, talk that he gave earlier this year, he said that one of the things that we're gonna be seeing is as, as pre-owned inventory continues to shrink, availability, available pre-owned pre inventory continues to shrink, new homes, new homes the, the actual percentage of total housing consumption is going to go up. In fact, they think that they potentially could set a record next year in 2024 as to the number, the percentage of total homes sold being new homes. So in other words, a larger percentage than they've ever seen before. Right. Which is interesting to, to me, being in real estate, right? And watching all these numbers, watching all these things happen. You've got a lot of people that are, on, that are sitting in their houses with two and three and 4% interest rates. And now interest rates are 8%. And they're not wanting to sell, they're not wanting to go and buy because nobody knows when those rates will in fact change. You mentioned on your on your slaying bulls and, and bears the other day on your on your uh, podcast, you mentioned something that I hadn't seen, and that is that there's actually some rumblings now that the Fed could cut interest rates later in 2024, like mid 2024. Yes. If I remember yes. what you said correctly. Yeah, it's about a 50% chance by around June. Yeah. So you also have companies like Rocket Mortgage and some of the rest of them that are coming out and saying, look, we think mid mid next year, interest rates could be as low as four, 30 year fixed rates could be as low as 4%. It's, this is an interesting time that we're in right now because it, to me, and I may be completely wrong here, but to me, it feels like we're sort of in this weird place in terms of housing where we're just not quite sure what's coming next. Now, foreclosure filings are up 34% last month, year over year, but foreclosure filings last year were so far down the 34% is really, it sounds significant, but it's really not that significant right, yeah, in the- 100% is zero is zero. Yeah, right, in the yeah, general yeah. scheme of things, right. you know what I mean? Um, so it's it's interesting to, to kind of watch a lot of this happen. And in California in particular, we were just having a conversation the other day, uh, myself and a number of investors were just having a conversation the other day about how being a landlord in California it's almost a disincentivized thing now. I've been in the real estate industry now for 30 plus years. 
32 coming up in February. And I used to work in what we call the REO market, which is real estate owned, mm -hmm. uh, it's the term. And it's basically banks that own property that they foreclosed on, that then they come to somebody like me and have me market it. I spent a great deal of time because of that in unlawful detainer hearings in court in San Diego. And one of the things that happened the other day was I had an investor that I worked with on a property that was evicting a squatter. And I was involved in, as a witness, I was involved in this unlawful detainer hearing. What was interesting to me, and I mentioned this to the group that I was talking to, is the difference between what you had before in terms of how the, the, the court looked at landlords versus tenants versus what they do now post-COVID is markedly different. Right. They are trying everything they can think of from the bench to find a loophole here or there or something that was filed incorrectly or whatever on the landlord side to try to make sure that the tenant doesn't have to move. And we're talking people that are squatters that haven't, this particular squatter hadn't made a rent payment in five years. Right. That's a problem. Well, it's a real problem because for capital markets to function, one of the reasons the U.S. is a beacon for capital, mm -hmm. and we are the world's beacon for capital, right? If you're if you're in China and you have manufacturing and you make all this money, there's a pretty good chance you have two sets of books. Mm -hmm. the, the invoices you send out and you get your payment because they have capital controls. Money's not supposed to leave. And then the secret account somewhere else where it gets deposited in U.S. dollars, right? right. We're a beacon for capital. Why are we a beacon for capital? because contracts are strictly enforced by their terms under the law by an impartial judiciary. We, you know, do you, do you trust the judge in a third world country that's run by drug lords? Mm -hmm. Not as much as you trust a court decision in San Diego, regardless of who you are or are not affiliated with, justice is supposed to be blind. Right. And that's the risk we run as a society, right? Well, we, we just, you know, we want to pass these rules and so-and-so can't evict so-and-so even if they never pay and this and that. And there was the big story this week about the Airbnb lady that stayed for five years and yeah. didn't pay. Uh, and if people lose faith in the, the, the fundamentals of property rights, you have to have property rights and a judiciary that enforces those property rights if you want to have capital. If you lose that, and we're still early stages, obviously, you know, my investment account is protected, it can't be taken, nobody's gonna take my home from me. But in a sense, when you own a home and you wanna give somebody the proper notice, 30 days, 60, whatever, to make it, you should be able to do that for any reason if you own that property. Correct. And now you have to pay to relocate them. There's different things happening yeah. in some of these, these districts. Fortunately, one of the benefits of these United States is we have 50 states and 50 different sets of laws and as some states pass laws that are disfavorable to capital. Capital can still freely leave. Not, yeah. like, in, not like in China where your capital can't freely leave. So investors go, oh, maybe I don't want to do business in San Diego or California or San Francisco. Maybe I'll go do business in Salt Lake or in Utah or Arizona or Nevada or Colorado or Mexico or Texas, all the way. And you're seeing, so you're seeing some of that. You're seeing mm -hmm. some capital leave. You're I've seeing, seen a lot of capital. You're leave. seeing people leave mm -hmm. uh, who say, and I don't want this level of, of restriction or taxation or lack of protection on a contract or a property right. right. And 
I don't know how far it has to go until then the, the voters make a decision like, hey, let's reverse that. Let's hire somebody who's different. We saw some uh, with crime, you know, there were some crime policies that were very different than we were normally accustomed to in the United States. And like, for example, San Francisco, crime went up. And then they said, well, actually, we want a district attorney that that's going to prosecute crime. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing some reversal. But uh, on this landlord stuff, I, you know, I don't think I'd want to be a landlord in, in Southern California. I, California. Haven't met, I haven't met very many people that are in the know, that know what's going on here, yeah. that want to be a landlord here. I think if you are a landlord already, you don't have much of a choice. But we need housing. And, yeah. and we have, that's, it's so expensive here. We need supply. Well. There's a lot of reasons you're not getting supply. Well, here's something that we're seeing. And and again, I'm I'm just talking about something that we're seeing. It's not making the papers, mm -hmm. okay? But here's what we're seeing. We have a lawful detainer that has swung, you know, and I've always talked about this. It, it, so after the 2008 Great Recession, you had a thing called Dodd-Frank, right? Dodd-Frank was, I talk about pendulum swinging, right? So. We went to a place to where we had almost no regulation in the mortgage industry, and that was a pendulum swing mm -hmm. that was that went too far. Right now we have Dodd Frank, which is a pendulum swing. That right, <clears throat> this is what's happening with the lawful detainer. We have that pendulum swing that's gone way too far, and now you have landlords, you have people, and you know this from conversations we've had, where we're in the midst of the single largest transfer of wealth in our nation's history. There's some $72 trillion with a T of wealth being transferred from baby boomers to their millennial kids and grandkids. 90% mm -hmm. of that is real estate and the millennials don't want it. Mm. And what we're seeing is the millennials are, in, are, are inheriting these properties that have tenants in them and they're going to their, to their agent and saying, I just want it gone. I just want it liquidated. The fact that it has a tenant in it, because of unlawful detainer, it's turned it into kryptonite. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so those properties that are tenant occupied as we speak are worth less money. You can ask anybody. You can that ask is, a you can ask a bank that's yeah. trying to sell a property that's a, that's tenant occupied. Yeah. You can ask an investor that's trying to do that. You can ask somebody who's who's inherited a property. Okay, yeah, that has a major impact on, it's going to have major impact on property values and property desirability. The thing that's interesting right now, we interviewed, or I interviewed um, Alan Nevin last week. Alan has a new book out. I'm in the middle of his book. Has, called The Next Half Century, yeah, right? Yeah. And if you read that book, that book, I, if you've gotten, I don't know if you've, if you've reached the California um, chapter yet, but in that book, California looks like it's the golden state again. It looks like it's, but it's, but it's top grading, okay? You have, according to what Alan's saying in his book, you have, I had to finish it because I had to interview him last week, uh, but according to his book, you have more venture capital coming to, the, to California than any other state in our union. Way more, like not even close, the other states. And you have MBAs and PhDs coming here, way more prevalent than any other state. And you have this group of people that are, we're gonna call it lower income echelons, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily not necessarily lower middle class, but 
just they make less money than a lot of these yeah. people that are coming in, right? Yeah. So it's this sort of top grading thing, they're leaving, okay? And what's interesting to me is we have laws and norms here now that are really anti-business and specifically anti-landlord and it's starting to have an impact on what you can get for property yes okay the thing is we have a lack of inventory that lack of inventory now it's starting to increase a little but that lack of inventory is sort of offsetting the rest of this so it's interesting it's going to be interesting to see what happens i think enough people get to a point to where they inherit enough property out here or own property that has tenants in it and they have enough of an issue with with a level detainer to where because there are literally there are literally attorneys right now that are following what's called cash for keys cash for keys is let's say you rent a property that i own and let's say i come to you and i say look curb I would love to give you, you know, I, I need your, I need the property. I've got somebody moving into it. I need it, whatever. I'm going to sell it, whatever the situation, I'm going to re remodel it. I need to have you move out. I would, I'm going to give you notice if we can't figure something else out. So I come to you and I say, look, let me ask you this. If you were to stay, right, or if you were to move, what would it cost for you to move? Okay. And you say, well, I've got deposit, I've got first month's rent, I might have last month's rent, I might have moving costs, let's say $10,000. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that I'll pay you $10,000 when you vacate the property and leave it what we call broom clean, which doesn't mean that you scrub it or any of that. Mm -hmm. You just don't have any debris left, right? There's no trash left, any of that. You take all your things with you and you just basically sweep the place and we're good. Then I come over on the day you move out, I walk it with you, we inspect it, make sure you didn't punch any holes in anything or harvest any copper piping, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I hand, I have you sign a release. Yep. It's an agreement between us. Yep. I have you sign the release, a receipt for the 10,000, I hand you the, the check, you hand me the keys, that's cash for keys, okay? Got it. There are lawyers in California that are following these cash for keys agreements and reaching out to the tenants, the former tenants, and and literally telling them, we can go back and sue your landlord for violating your rights. Yeah. Cash for keys. Why would anybody want to invest their capital in a situation where the capital wasn't protected? By well, the that's what I'm saying. So exactly right. not only do you have an unlawful detainer issue, right, in terms of the court, you now have these ambulance chasers that are going after, right, and so it's becoming a situation where it's starting to get worse and worse. And I'm seeing it in a way that I haven't seen it in 32 years. And, and, and it's an issue. It's a challenge because landlords are not, some landlords are worth buku bucks. Okay. But that's a very small Most percentage. Mom and pops. That's yeah. a very small yeah. percentage. The vast majority, and I'm talking 70, 80, 90% are mom and pops that that house is their retirement. That's right. And that tenant decides to squat and not pay rent and they can't afford to take them to a lawful detainer. It's a problem. It's a real, real problem.
Okay. And with a system that's working against us. Are any other states doing this or just California? Well, New York is New York is starting to, to ramp up a lot of their post-COVID yeah. uh, tenant protection laws, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of what's happening in Sacramento is mirroring a lot of what's happening in, in New York, which is interesting because New York has the largest mass exodus from their state. Mm -hmm. California's number two. Between the two of them in three years, almost 800,000 people. How many congressional seats is that? It's you big, know, California, California last year lost a congressional seat, yeah. first time in history. Yeah, I think maybe New York did, maybe too. I think, I think they may have lost two. Florida picked up two. It's still 435. Yeah, because I think Texas, Texas picked up one, and I think and I think Florida picked up two. Yeah. And those came from New York and, and yeah, yeah. California. Yeah, wow. It's interesting. So the 30,000-foot view which is Alan, right, in his book, is California has so much coming in the future in terms of, in terms of for lack of a better term, top grading. Yeah. The challenge is there's some systemic issues here. And it's going to be like you were talking about, you know, when are voters going to basically decide enough is enough? It's going to be interesting to see, to see how that all plays out. And, you know, you throw interest rates on top of it in terms, and that that affects affordability and the whole thing. And here, affordability is a real issue. Alan was on our on my radio show a few years ago, and he said, "Look, he goes every time the thirty-year fixed rate goes up by a quarter of a percent to the rate, there's over twenty-three thousand San Diegans that cannot qualify to buy anymore. Every quarter point. Every quarter point. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, think about this." We're four percentage points ahead, above where we were, mm -hmm. six or, or yeah. four or five. We're five to five, four to five. Right. That's a lot of California. That's a lot of San Diegans, man. Sure is. It, it really is. is. Yeah. That's, so it's true everywhere too. So let's talk about this. We're okay. talking about interest rates. Yep. Where do you see interest rates going? And I know it's hard to Super to do the crystal ball yeah. thing, right? Um, and I know you, you know, sneezed, fogged it up, and it rolled off and broke. But based on what you're seeing right now, and based on your podcast on Monday, yeah, where do you think potentially interest rates could be headed? Well, so it's interesting if you look at the curve. Have we done the thirty-six minutes? Did yeah, they make the decision you, yet? You, uh, oh yeah, yeah. We're we're it's eleven thirty, so I can. I can tell you that I can tell you there's no decision. We can actually look at the screen, <laughs> but I, I can tell you that they didn't they didn't do anything. It's all about right now. It's all about the uh, messaging. Okay. Uh, and so and they, they have to send the message that um, yeah no change. Okay. Uh, and it, so but they have to send the message and we'll see what the markets. The markets are up, so it must have been a pretty you know decent message. And the yield on the ten years down to four seventy nine. So. He's, so they're keying off of the commentary? Yeah, okay. keying off the commentary, and he's speaking now, and I'll watch it when, when, we're, when we're done. But um, So if you think about the yield curve, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the yield 30-year, 20-year, 10-year, 5-year? A normal curve mm -hmm. is the short-term rates are low, the long-term rates are high. Right. That's normal. When the short-term rates go above the long-term rates, you, you know all this. Inverted yield curve. call it inverted yield curve. So... The Fed controls that short-term rate, right. right? So they're raising, 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 raising. And that's why money markets pay so well right now and CDs and all that kind of stuff. But the 10-year is at 479, and the Fed funds, where it is right there, upper bound is five and a half. Hmm. So, so Fed funds rate, like an overnight rate, is higher 
than a 10-year rate is higher than 30 rate. It's an inverted curve. So either the long end rates have to go much higher to normalize the curve, or that short-term rate has to come much lower to normalize the curve. Right. Which is it going to be? Well, it's entirely dependent upon the development of inflation and jobs. Mm -hmm. If inflation continues to go down as we see it, no problem. Eventually, the Fed can slowly, slowly, slowly bring it back down and normalize the curve. If job losses stay essentially nil, it's 3.8% unemployment, mm -hmm. well, the Fed doesn't need to do anything to stimulate jobs, right? Where, the Fed, where we run into the trouble, the worst case scenario, inflation stays high and we get job losses because then the Fed's two jobs conflict with each other. Right. I have to stimulate the economy. I can't wait, I can't stimulate the economy, we have inflation. Well, I need to get people hired, but we can't because of inflation. Wow. So they've been very lucky, incredibly lucky right now, and that is they're looking over here saying, well, weekly claims for unemployment are 200, 210,000 a week. We have 1.7, 1.8 million people unemployed. That's nothing in a country of 350 million people. So we can exclusively focus on the fight on inflation by raising short-term rates and letting the balance sheet run off. And that's what they're doing. My, my guess is middle of next year, we get a little more slowdown. Okay. I don't, I don't it, you know, I called the recession in March wrong. Right. My view at the time was, hey, we've hiked rates so many times, mm -hmm. now we have bank failures, because banks aren't lending. They mm -hmm. still aren't lending, right? Right? They still aren't really, if, you, you know, if you're a car dealer and you have to finance your lot, you, know, you have 100 cars on your lot, you borrow money to do that. Mm -hmm. Three years ago, you were paying two and a half, three percent, highly secured, today you're paying eight and a half percent. So you have less Big cars deal. on your lot, slows down the, the, the economic activity. My, my view is that the Fed will always say, while inflation is high, that our main focus is on inflation and we're willing to do whatever it takes and raise interest rates. They're gonna, they have to say that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about bringing down expectations. But the minute the economy begins to slow, inflation will slow with it. And now the Fed has ammunition. They can cut rates from five and a half to five and a quarter to five, four and three quarters. They got a long way to go mm -hmm. to stimulate that economy that's, that if it's slowing, that inflation is going down with it. It's highly unlikely that we can have high inflation and the job losses. However, there's always a scenario and it can happen. That's that stagflation. Okay, so let me let me stop for just a second. So yeah. I get what you're saying, but I have a question. Yeah. With all of this government spending, like the Inflation Reduction Act and you know, and, the, and what, what, what's prompting this is these, these stimulus, quote-unquote, packages that have been approved and, and shoved through, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, and signed into law by the, by the president, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is a joke. I mean, it's not, it's the, it's not what it's being called, right? And, right. I mean, he even, he even said, I mean, Biden even said, I shouldn't have named it that, right? That whole yes. thing was let's get it out the door. Let's well, get it, it. Let's get it into law. Our, our most profitable industry, industries, is technology, right? And we lead the world in technology companies. It's one of the reasons you know the S and P five hundred and the Nasdaq are outpacing everything, right? Mm -hmm. It's the big giant. Well, the Nasdaq's up twenty eight percent so far this year. Uh, it was. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> big giant. Yesterday, uh, tech tech companies, right? So. They have very high profit margins, gross, net, every, everything about them. 
So part of that act is just to give them money. Simple. Well, chips, right? Chip makers, yeah. And then part of that is well, national interest. Yes, we want to lead the world in it. We don't want China to take position from our company. So is that part of the Inflation Reduction Act? Oh, the yeah. Act? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So we're giving money to our most profitable businesses. Yeah, that makes sense. So, well, what do we want well, to do? What, but, could we but, have done other things? Could we restrict the imports from others? Could well, we I actually use... don't. I actually don't. I actually don't disagree with that, and I'll tell yeah. you why. Taiwan is such a monolith when it comes to right. when it comes to chip manufacturing. There's, right? There's a self. There's a national defense. Yeah, Alan talks about this consideration. It's very serious. Yeah. Question becomes though. I was just isolating that in a vacuum of is it inflationary or is it actually inflation reduction act? That it's uh, you know on the margin when you give money to businesses that's inflationary. You're encouraging them to right. invest and spend, but we want to invest and spend, and we want from a national defense and security standpoint to not be as reliant on foreign sources. Right. Now, we, thus we, the, JD, the GDP goes up. Yes. Well, we talked about that, it for, right? for years not being reliant on foreign sources of energy, and yet we're still reliant on foreign energy. Yeah, that that does not that does not compute with me. But we, I'm from the oil patch, so right. Well, you live in the oil patch. There's more proven reserves in California Central Valley than than in, in uh, some of the uh, places in the Middle East. Like, yeah. We just don't, we just don't take them out of the, you know, the ground. Yeah, 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 it just, that boggles my mind. The yes. whole thing just, yes. anyway. Um, so, because it, it, when Trump was in office, we were a net exporter. We, we were, and, and one of the things we have, this, this country is blessed with natural resources. You yeah. Know, you think about the countries in the news right now, like say Israel, there's like no natural resources, right? They, we're blessed with with uh, a, abundant clean burning natural gas, right. as an example, uh, and and abundant oil deposits with new technology that allows us to extract it. Prob the problem that we have is we 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 have uh, extensive regulation, which is good, if it protects things, it protects the environment, provides long-term sustainability to our energy needs. But if it prevents, but if it puts us in a situation where I can't buy oil. They came out of the ground in California, right? And that would be could be refined in uh, Oceanside. I don't know where we could build a refinery in Del Mar, right? We can't do that, so we have to bring it in from other places. It becomes expensive. Uh, OPEC is still very much in charge, right? Uh, and and why we haven't figured that out over decades and decades of dependency? It drove a lot of the inflation. I said I talked about us going off the gold standard and the Vietnam War, but the third leg of that hyperinflation of that period was obviously the energy and the energy crisis uh, and our, our lack you know, of oil embargo, yeah. the whole thing. I mean, we have the technology. I mean, just up the road here, we had a, a, a incredibly clean nuclear plant. San Onofre. San Onofre. And it was uh, shut down. Mm -hmm. and it's, being dis it's going to ultimately be dismantled. And I talked to some you know, colleagues and clients that are specifically in the ener energy industry, and they could not come up with a a reason for it. They could not come up with a way in which it would help California consumers' energy costs and bills. Um, and my, my, to dismantle it. To dis it, it, it. It's clean, it was, it's good, it was working, it's there. Uh, we, we spent money to build it. It's supplying energy to households. And um, from a cost perspective, obviously the, mo the move towards renewables is is great right mm -hmm. if you can if you can ensure abundant cheap energy for generations and generations to come that's great 
and to the extent that the powers of government can help to influence and move that, that's great. But from talking to people in the energy industry who produce both, the mm -hmm. clean and the, and the, and the, and the, and the other, they're, saying, they're telling me that we're doing it incorrectly, that we're expediting the move before we have the infrastructure. For example, the, the, the you know, if everybody went out today, everybody in California said, okay, let's say I'm going to buy an, an EV. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would be great. We'd have no pollution from cars, and you know, about 20% of greenhouse gas emissions are from our cars. Right. That's a big number, 20%. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great? Well, their response is, well, hold on. Where are you getting electricity to charge the car? Right. Yeah, well, what do you mean? We just plug it in. Mm -hmm. Well, no, 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 no. You actually have to make it and then put, it, put it on the grid, and then you can plug it. Right. And we're we're not. No, we're not we're even not, remote. We're no. not even remotely no. close. And there's a guy that bought an F one hundred and fifty that that got stranded with his family. Yeah. Because he got to a charging station and the charging station wasn't working. Yes. And so he went out and rented an F one hundred and fifty. <laughs> it's a true story. But gas. That was that was a gas powered F one hundred and fifty, and finished his his trip. Yeah. Then went and had the the EV the Lightning the F one hundred and fifty electric vehicle. He had it towed to the dealership. Yeah. And f continued on with his with his family's trip because he wasn't going to ruin his family's trip over it. Sure. And then he takes it back, turns in the rental car, and yeah. writes a writes a letter to to Ford, does a video, the whole thing, and then the CEO of Ford has to come out to answer him. And say, look, it's we're not where we need to be infrastructure-wise yet. This is not a long-distance. You know, if you're a long-distance hauler of or driver of pickup trucks like, yeah, this guy, right? Yeah, you don't want an EV. There's great technology. Look, I love the concept of electric vehicles. I think it's cool. They're faster. Mm -hmm. They're more powerful. They're quicker off the line. They have less maintenance. They don't put out. You know, and they, they break even on their greenhouse gases after I think it's two years because there's a lot of gas from from manufacturing the batteries, especially there's strip mining, there's labor issues in foreign countries, all of those things. I'm still a, ma a major fan, mm -hmm. but you know, it, you can't bake cookies if you don't have sugar, yeah. right? And, and that's kind of what we've done in this race to embrace. Norway is a great example, like 80 some percent of their auto sales in the last year were uh, were electric, oh. but heavily, heavily, heavily subsidized to get people there, and they didn't quite have the infrastructure uh, available. But do I, am I hopeful that in the next 15, 20 years, that the, the technology is going to evolve and there'll be batteries that have a 4,000 mile charging capacity? Absolutely, batteries that can charge in minutes as opposed to days or hours or half days, absolutely. But I, I think that the way to get there is through market-based incentives, mm -hmm. which the government can guide through legislation. And, but the way we've done it was just, we didn't do it right. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we incentivized the construction of electrical generation facilities domestically and an updating of our, of our infrastructure through the tax code so that private capital, private equity capital said, wow, that's a great deal. Mm -hmm. Let's go build another San Onofre. Yeah. And there's incentives there, and instead we're dismantling a San Onofre, and we're and then or or natural gas plants that would generate electricity from natural gas, which is clean. Mm -hmm. Now somebody might call and say it's not clean to get it, but I think on a relative basis it's one of the cleanest. It is that we have. It and, is, and there's and there's tons yeah. of research to that effect yes, too. Yes, and I know it's clean. I mean, I grew up in the oil patch, yeah. right? And we used to burn natural gas off. 
I mean, there's, I'm not joking, there's right. torches, yeah. very big, huge torches burning off, yeah, off 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. They're just burning all the time. And they had to do that because you generate natural gas when you generate oil. So when you produce oil in that, in that structure of carbon, okay, yeah. is gas that has built up. That gas has to be released in order to generate that oil production. So you have both. Right. You also, by the way, generate something called salt water, which is an off an offshoot of uh, a byproduct, if you will, of, of oil production. And that salt water, if it if it leaks, it kills your your farmland. So, like, there's there's areas of my grandfather's home place back in Oklahoma that have they're just dead. You can't grow anything, and you won't be able to grow anything for years because there was a leak going to a salt water well. You know a, a pipe right basically yeah. going to a saltwater well i repaired it i dug it up and repaired it but that's another thing that happens with oil production oil production does have an effect as byproducts well it has an effect yeah. on the on the environment yeah one thing that nobody talks about is the earthquake capital of the world now is oklahoma know that. no place on the planet has more earthquakes than oklahoma now wow. and think about this all those houses that were built all those all those years decades and decades and decades had no elect no earthquake retrofit wasn't required mm. and they're built out of brick and block and when a real earthquake hits and i'm talking real right mm. like we get out here when a real earthquake hits is what's happening in oklahoma is they're small they're tiny right but they're happening all the time and they're registering on the richter scale right when a real earthquake hits the walls of block and brick explode mm. outward, and the roof comes <laughs> down on whoever's in there, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's scary. Yeah. So, but it's but that they believe came from fracking. They believe that the earthquake activity is a byproduct of the fracking that's gone on forever and ever. I've been out there, I've been out there with with units that uh, that were out there to service wells, and they fracked every year. Mm. My grandfather ran stripper wells. You have to frack stripper wells or they stop producing. And so it's, you know, it's interesting to, to kind of see all this evolve. We're going to wrap this up. I know we've been here a long time. I apologize. But oh, it's been great. Uh, but so your feeling about interest rates, and thank you again for this. This is awesome. Um, your feeling about interest rates going forward, basically, is there's going to be kind of a balancing act. It sounds like it's a balancing act. I think the Fed is. I think the Fed's done. Yeah. The only way the Fed's not done is if inflation suddenly shoots higher, and the trend is definitely not that way. Right. I don't think they're going to cut anytime soon. The question is when really when does the curve sort of normalize? So how long has the yield curve been inverted? It's been a while, right? Gosh, it's been. Uh, over a year. And isn't it like... Well, let's see. I'm, I got it right here on my yeah. screen. It looks like it inverted. That's uh, 22. That's June. It looks like it inverted uh, spring of 22. Yeah. So yeah. we're... Over a year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because we're... But it was also negative. I'm looking at the... Uh, I'm looking at the... the the three month to the ten year right, inversion. Right. Some people do two year, ten year. Yeah. But the three month to the ten year inversion was almost 200 basis points earlier this year. Now it's only 66 basis points. So it's adjusting. Yeah. Well, it's it's what's happened is short term rates haven't come down. Right. The longer term rates now have gone up, which now translate into your eight percent mortgages. Right. Um, and typically recessions have come. The curve inverts. 
and then the curve normalizes and that's when the recession hits because the Fed's sort of cutting, starts to cutting those short-term rates down. So there's a 50-50 chance we get, a, we get a, a, I think, a mild recession next year, which would cause that curve and then those short-term rates come down. You gotta remember too, when interest rates were zero, we were all telling our kids who were buying property, my kids were buying their first properties. And I said, you're locking in the 30 year rate. Mm -hmm. It's two and a half percent, mm -hmm. two and three eighths. And their friends, the, the mortgage brokers are also in their twenties are saying, why would you do that? We've got a five year arm at one and an eight. Mm -hmm. And I said, dad knows. Cause right. dad remembers eight, 10% mortgages. So they were able to do that. I think your industry uh, goes back to the, everybody buying an arm. Yeah. Right. Well, that's where we are now. And you're there. You're there now. But if those rates, short terms, can come down a little bit, and they go well, and then you know, then of course rates, or they go, ah, oh, we're going to pay a percent, but it's only a couple of years till the next recession. I'll be able to refinance at that yeah. time, and all that kind of stuff. Because in the end, we all have to have a place to live. What we're hearing right now from every single person that's in the market to buy a house, every single person, and I'm talking not my clients necessarily, yeah. but but clients of realtors that I'm talking to people I'm coaching, mentoring, helping, that kind of thing, um, they are literally hearing from every single person, interest rates are gonna drop, so we're just gonna buckle down, buy at 8%, do a 30-year fixed rate, refine. and then refinance later on next year. They are careful about thinking that interest rates could go higher. Mm -hmm. And so there's, I think there's some PTSD from the Great Recession. Oh yeah, still sure. going on. And they you know, can go higher. I mean, where people, yeah, yeah. It's a risk. The other thing we're seeing is uh, people are doing pledged asset lines. Yeah. Pledged asset lines. They take they take stocks they've mm -hmm. had for decades and decades, very low basis. They don't want to sell and pay capital gains. They put them in a brokerage account. Brokerage companies have a bank affiliated, and then that bank will give you this this pledged asset line, which is based off the SOFR rate plus a margin which would be a variable rate mm -hmm. as, as the Fed funds goes down, when and if it does, then the SOFR goes down as well. And so they're, therefore they're able to go to buy property all, make an all cash offer yeah. using, using those lines. And then they might refi it into a traditional mortgage down the road. Yeah, and all cash, all cash transactions right now as a percentage of the total transaction Hi. are twice what they've been in history. I believe it. I mean, yeah. they are really, yeah. really up. I believe so. It. Herb, thank you again. Hey, my pleasure. Appreciate hey, it, but this was awesome. awesome. We gave them something to think about. Yeah, we did. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.